This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 62. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 62 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. Thanks for being here today. Got a great show as usual. Mr. Maor Applebaum, mastering engineer, will be on shortly. Maor comes from Israel to the United States, and, uh, well, he actually came several years ago, but uh, fascinating discussion about his journey here and what he has learned along the way and his career. And yeah, fascinating guy, really enjoyed talking with him. And I think you'll enjoy that conversation as well. So there it is coming up. So here's a couple things I want to tell you about. Possibly a little confusing. I know I've been mentioning the YouTube page to you, and I know that uh, I've said, hey, if you know you're watching. Fact is, is that uh, we gave it a shot at uh, trying to make each episode of the podcast available on YouTube. And the fact of the matter is, is that it's a bitch, man. It's really, it's a challenge. And uh, started to really take away from the podcast itself. So we've, and I say we, meaning the committee, the committee of me and and, and everybody around me that uh, works on the podcast, we've made the decision that what we will do, we will keep the YouTube page going, but we're going to save it for special content. And we're just going to keep the podcast the podcast. That way, the podcast remains special and its own thing. And we definitely are going to have some uh, special content reserved just for the YouTube page that will really be special. Well, that's why we call it special content. So so there it is. So if uh, you know there's been any confusion about that, that's kind of why. We've just really been struggling with uh, trying to figure it out. And that's you know part of the deal of creating something and trying things and putting them out there and going, well, okay, that's not working or that's sabotaging our main objective here. And uh, the podcast needs to uh, stay intact. So there it is. I appreciate your uh, your patience with me there. Um, now, I did also mention that uh, coming up in a uh, future episode, we were going to do a little bit of acoustic discussion and uh, look for that in the next episode. I think you're really going to get a big kick out of that. And I hope, it, uh, hope you find it useful. It's going to be helpful to me. Uh, to learn a little bit more. Always good to brush up on the knowledge. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be coming up uh, next week. So that's about it. Uh, just wanted to touch on all that. So I say we just jump right into it uh, with Maor Applebaum, Mastering Engineer, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I want to make sure that I pronounce your name correctly because I know that it's a common mistake. Many people say Maor, but it's actually Maor, right? Maor. Maor. I was reading a bit about you online, and I found your story to be very fascinating. I realized you came to the U.S. to uh, work at Sylvia Massey's studio in Weed. What year was that? That was uh, summer of 2007. You had been... Recording and mixing and, and from what I read, DJing, you'd been doing a variety of things in Israel. And I'm curious, what prompted you to come to California to work for Sylvia? Well, in Israel, I, I was doing, as you noticed, a, a bunch of things. And it was really because that's how we could make a living. You know, you couldn't rely on only certain gigs to come in. You have to make sure 
you know, it all comes in. So you're kind of a jack of all trades. I don't know, maybe jack of all trades, master of nothing, but you find yourself doing a lot of different things. It's not uncommon for someone who does uh, recordings to do live sound as well or post-production or I guess it also happens here, but maybe here there's more people who have a specific thing they do and they get known for that. And there it's kind of a you know combination of things. So it was just a natural thing to do. And one day I did... I, I, that was when I was doing broadcasting. I was a broadcasting engineer for eight years. And I um, I said to myself, okay, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, I, I feel like I want to expand to different places and explore other types of recordings and work with different bands that were not the ones that I worked with back then. I did have some international work when I was there, but... I wanted to actually put myself in that spot where where it's it's um, surrounding me, and uh, I remember thinking that you know even though I want to just do mastering, that's my main thing. That's where what some of my income was, and that was you know where I wanted to head with uh, to head my career to towards. I knew that I'll probably do other things as well, but just out of necessity. I worked with this band called Seek Irony, which Sylvia Massey had produced back then. I mastered their uh, songs, and we got in touch. And she asked me if I, you know, if, if I'm interested, uh, you know, in coming there. I, you know, the, the conversation was more of I would love to, you know, come there and work, and and uh, and it just, you know, progressed. And she said, if you're interested. You know, come back, come, come over. And I said yes, and um, we finished. Uh, you know, I finished everything I needed to do back then in Israel, including uh, the broadcasting studio that I was managing uh, was was closing in the summer, so it was perfect timing. And uh, I was thirty-two. You know, I was younger and wanted to to try out you know new things and. I, 32 is not that young, you know, to start fresh, but it was a good idea, I think, you know, putting everything aside and saying, okay, we know we can get to this place and do this, but let's see what we can do a you know, different. Uh, you said it's, it's pretty common for people to diversify in Israel. Um, your peers and, and other engineers that you know, were they also diversifying uh, like you were or, or were there anybody, was there anybody there that was doing just mixing or just mastering that you looked up to as a, as a, as a mentor at all? There were a few that were just doing one thing, but it's a small country and Everybody who wanted to succeed in audio had to kind of work their way up, but still work their way to the sides. <laughs> to focus on one thing, you had to kind of survive by doing other things. And um, the market is so small that you know you 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 can't you can't specialize without knowing that you really have a crowd there, and you got to build a crowd there because it's 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 
much tough. It's it's smaller. So you know, if you get known, you get known, and everybody knows you. You know, but on the other hand, you know, if you don't get known, you're not going to get in. (laughs) Were you were you scared to to leave the the comforts of home and and come to the United States? Like, what what was that process like for you to just pack it all up and come to a new country and start fresh? You know, it was it, it, it was a bit scary because you know you get in your comfort zone. You know what money you make. You know what what it entails. You know now it's something different. You know you got to move to a different country, different mentality. You got to think and speak in a different language, and you gotta uh, communicate differently. And like in all terms, you know, like you know in Israel we talk in a certain way. Here you have to talk differently to the people. Um, also, you know, take this 15 hour flight, <laughs> a new place, Wow! Which, you know, you don't live there originally, you know, so you got to build your life there. Uh, actually to weed, it was more than 15 hours cause I had to take, you know, other, uh, flights in between and all that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit scary, you know, and especially when you're older, and you think what you really are losing to gain. You know, if you were, if I was in my beginning 20s, then I would say, okay, no problem. You know, I haven't built my career, you know, but you're 32, you already have a certain career. You know, you, you know how much money you make, you, you know who, who are your fellow peers and how you work with them and you kind of establish, you know, your place there. And then, after years of doing so, you kind of, uh, I don't know if you erase it because it still exists in your history, but you kind of say, well, no, something new now hmm. and start from scratch. And yeah, it is, it is scary. Yeah. But it makes you work harder. Had you been to the United States before on any kind of exploratory kind of, well, let's go there and visit and just check it out. Or did you just come on, on faith? Well, as a kid, I've been here a few times. Okay. That's a kid. We're talking about in the 80s. You know, it, it doesn't re- reflect anything <laughs> of um, or grown-up environment. Yeah. So I wasn't checking the area before coming here. Okay. I did phone calls to some friends and asked them, what's up? You know, what's happening there? Mm-hmm. So nobody can really give you the big picture because everybody's in different places and they have their story and uh, you kind of pick up from each one and try to figure it out and you always have to experience it in a way. I'm sure there was many unexpected things, but was there anything that stuck out that was unexpected that came as a complete surprise and either positive or negative? Well, I came to a small town named Weed. You know, it's, there's not much there, you know, it was just a studio. So I didn't really see anything. You know, it's not like moving to LA or New York or or any of those big cities. It's a small lumber town, so you kind of live there for a while and uh, get used to the climate. Um, the first weeks that I was there, I got to work on a album that got Grammy nominated for Best Zydeco. Uh, I didn't master it. I mixed two songs off it, uh, and uh, so I got an additional mixing credit. And uh, because it was Grammy nominated, so I did get uh, I did get the participation you know, plaque. 
What was your experience like with Sylvia there, and what did you learn from her? It was my first time in an American studio, uh, seeing you know bands come in, record and mix and go, you know, and leave back to their country or back to where they're from, and the whole dynamics of a band actually coming in to you know to a place like weed and and working there with their music and working with the producers and engineers it, it was a different a totally different um experience than what i had known before a mm-hmm. uh, great thing is i got to work on great gear and got to work with really cool music and opportunities like like i said that grammy nominated album uh, it was uh, lisa haley king cake and that was the dominated and so that was a great experience and i got to work with a few other bands that were there that uh, got uh, one of them was cog and they got like gold in australia and so it was a it was a very diverse experience because i got to do some mixing i got to do some tracking i got to assist i got to set up gear i got to you know, be different roles in the studio. I did get to do some mastering for some stuff there that was done and also stuff from outside mm-hmm. was sent in. But this was more of like entering uh, America and entering uh, uh, the studio life, various facets of the, the, the audio gig. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. different roles in the audio. And it was good. It was good. I, I think it was very important for me to get that experience. I think it was more like, uh, it, it, of course, it's hands-on with gear, but what was really important there is is understanding the communications. Yeah, because you said it was very different than what you had experienced in Israel. How so? Well, in, in, in Hebrew and Israel, you know, the, the, the language and the mentality is very direct. You know, we we speak uh, very fast and, and specifically, and uh, it's it's different the way you approach things than in English or in America. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's quite different, and uh, it, it still takes time for me sometimes to uh, you know understand the different. They're, they're, I'm in a better situation today where I understand more of it, how it is. Right. But it's still different. And sometimes because you're not used to it or grown up like that, you, you have to think how you say the words better. Did you feel that you had to slow, slow your communication down to, to be able to communicate effectively because you were so used to communicating at a little bit, you know, quicker pace with people and. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's not just a fast pace. It's, it's how it's when you say something, the directivity of it. Um, it, it. In Israel, when we talk, even if we need to put a skirt on something, you know, and make it beautiful, we still we still don't go too much beating around the bush. You know, it still will be more direct. So, it's finding the right words in English for me. How to how to make it nice and explain, <laughs> and, uh, and also the dialogue is is very apologetic. 
here. Mm -hmm. Everything is very like, and I understand that it's nice. You know, there's a lot of courtesy in it, but mm -hmm. it also slows the process. You know, instead of saying, "Hey, let's fix that vocal take" or "Let's fix that mix," it's like, you know, it sounds really good, and but and and I think you got the right job. You know, you did the right thing, and it's, you know, you got it really good there. I have a feeling that you know, if it was a bit bit lower in that section. Maybe it will work better. I'm not sure right now, but you know, maybe we should try. You know, what do we have to lose? You know, where? Oh man, you've got it. You've got it right there. That that that's it. You have to like kind of smooth everything out for people. Right. Where there, I would say, you know, I you know, I think you know, we can change this and do a bit here and there, and I think it will be better. Would you mind trying? You know, or let's try. You know, it's just quicker. You know, and you know, it's it's like here you kind of walk on eggs. You know, like mm -hmm. want to break it, and 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 I've I've you know I've broken a few eggs. You know, to make a good omelet. You know, but uh, it, it's harder, especially when you really want to get going with this good. You know, you 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 want to move forward. You don't want to delay things just because you got to reestablish your communication skills and reestablish the sentences and you know it just becomes a kind of a psychological thing that you really have to be over courteous just so they get the message especially in the music business oh yeah well i mean everything that has art in it you know people could be very very sensitive and i'll be honest with you you know i think that you know it's it's important to cater the artist and, and understand their feelings. But I think, you know, if you're going for, if you really want to help them, you know, you got to help them the way you can. And there's more politics here involved than there is there because, you know, it's also something that was kind of taught throughout the years. You know, people got used to be treated like that and people got used to treating like that. So it's, it's kind of like, um, it's something that was brought years ago and didn't really change. But I can understand it. There's good things in it as well. But sometimes it just, it's like there's a politeness that is demanding. Like somebody would say something and then, could you help? You know, could you help? It's like he's demanding. He's not being courteous. He's just using nice words to say, to be demanding, you know? Or I think we need this. Could you help? Or any thoughts? Like, you're not really asking me for my thoughts. You're just demanding it, and you're being courteous in your writing. <laughs> you can just say, I think we need this. Can you give us another take with that? Or, you know, it just, there's a lot of time wasted on trying to be super nice, where you can just be nice. Yeah. As Andrew Shep says, just don't be a dick. Yeah. Yeah. You can give your opinion. They don't have to take it. Yeah. I have to accept it. But it would be nice, at least, if they listened to it. Do you feel that the East Coast would have been a, a smoother transition in regards to that directness? Because my experience with folks on the East Coast, and especially because I have a brother that lives on the East Coast, speaks very directly. People speak very directly there. When I came to America, I didn't know the difference between East Coast and West Coast. <laughs> I know it as America, you know? Right. So, um, after being in New York a few times, I say, well, on, a, on, a, on that level, yes, that will be easier for me because it's, you know, it's more 
similar. I can't say it's exact, but it's kind of that, like in Israel. Still, people can be curious. They can be rude as well. But uh, that that might have been a, more of what I'm used to. But I'm in L.A., so kind of had to learn. And I had to learn what to do. But, you know, I also take it in a positive way as being courteous to other people, you know, not like even also from East Coast or from Europe. It, it Basically, it's a good practice to learn, but do it in a way that it gets the message clear and you're not losing time trying to put the skirt on it, but just be very efficient with words and, uh, and describe as much as you can. Sometimes I have to call on, you know, ask them to talk on the phone because to write an email will take me a long time where on the phone I can, you know, bounce ideas fast. Yeah, you can get, you can cut to the chase. Yes. So how long were you at, at Sylvia's place? I think it was about eight months, something like that. And where did you end up going from Sylvia's? I moved to L.A., and I opened my own thing. I, I had a small place because we just moved here. Uh, I, I, I took another job at Samash selling pro audio gear uh-huh. for four months. And during the day I was selling pro audio gear and during the night I was mastering. So that way I did continue doing my, my thing as a mastering engineer, but I also had another income stream just to help with the move here so to pay the rent in the beginning to pay for a car to pay for a few things we needed and i only did that for four months after that i i left the job at sam ash selling the audio gear and just continued only mastering and i think it was a good thing that i did because one it helped me get more money to at least start here you mm-hmm. know, buy a car and uh, you know get along here a bit Second, it taught me to talk with clients, uh, you know, more experiencing more English mm-hmm. in terms of uh, discussion, talking, explaining. Of course, in time, you learn more and more and you see what you need to, to add more to the conversation or what you can take off from the conversation. But I think it was a good thing. And, and it taught me a few things about people in general in the industry and how they look at things. And it got me some connections I made some good connections and uh, friends. I've seen many pictures of your mastering setup and it's, and it's a very nice setup, by the way. I've seen your interview with our friend Warren Hewitt and uh, I've seen many pictures. Did you come here with most of that or did you end up acquiring that gear when you arrived? No, I, I, I bought it throughout the years. The money that came in from the work was invested back in the studio. Okay. So it was always evolving always like a natural progression. Okay, I got that money, okay, let's put it into gear. I don't live a fancy life. You know, the money that comes in goes to my family and to the studio. And uh, so it's all the time evolving, and I add all the time gear. What, what you see in a picture now would not be the same thing as what you have seen five years ago. Okay. So Because I added, um, I believe that you know, in order to grow, you've got to grow in your own realm as well. It's not just growing outside where you become bigger. It's also you have to grow inside to accommodate the certain things that come in. And I like to have different types of music from all over the world, different territories, different sonics. So to cater that, I have to have different types of gear. So I don't have one type of sound. Interesting. Uh, When you talk about different territories and different countries 
different sonics. Do you do you spend time researching music from other countries and what's happening sonically there, or do you just have a client arrive and you say, okay, this is what you're doing. Let me let me check out other artists in your area before we begin. What's your process? Well, because I came from Israel, the music that we had in Israel was basically imported music. So, of course, we had local scene, but a lot of it was imported. So I would hear a lot of music from Europe, different areas of Europe, and I would hear a lot of music from America. So my perspective was very wide to begin with, because the radio was not what I would listen to in order to know what's hip. What's hip was what was fed through various outlets. It could be from friends. It could be from cable TV, mm-hmm. it could be from local radio, it could be from distant radio, and it could be from uh, just uh, scenes that I'm aware of, and then you research them more. You know, just like looking at thanks lists, like at a thanks list on a, on a CD, and a lot of bands had like friends that were in other bands. So you would read those names, and then you go to a record store and look for that album, or that had that band in. So I was always exposed to a lot of types of music, and I keep doing so, being exposed to music. Every once in a while, you come across something that you never heard before, or heard but didn't know that it existed as a certain genre. All right, I hope you're enjoying the interview with Maurer Applebaum here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. want to take a little sponsor break here. I was over at the Audio-Technica site, and I discovered that they do a microsite dedicated to headphones. This is very cool. It's at www.audio-technica.com slash monitor headphones. And whether you know it or not, they actually do three different types of headphones. They do professional in-ear monitor headphones, they do professional monitor headphones, and they do professional open-back reference headphones, like, for example, the new ATHR70X. And of course, I went directly to the ATH-M40X section because that's the headphone that I love. Just reading up on on, on some of the details of it, basically it says the high-performance ATH-M40X professional headphones are tuned flat for incredibly accurate audio across an extended frequency range. Your studio experience is enhanced with superior sound isolation and swiveling ear cups for convenient on-ear monitoring. Engineered with pro-grade materials and robust construction, the M40X excels in professional studio tracking and mixing, as well as DJ monitoring. Well, I can't speak to the DJ monitoring part of it, but I can definitely uh, tell you that uh, as far as studio tracking and mixing, I truly enjoy them. So it says they have a custom-made driver uh, to deliver outstanding performance in a high-precision package. Achieving the same sonic signature as the M50X uh, is made possible by using the latest driver technology fabricated in Audio-Technica's tightly controlled manufacturing facility. Strict attention to the sound design means the M40X delivers class-leading monitor audio. Now, all that sounds great, and I'll just tell you, from a non-technical perspective, I just love these headphones. They feel good to wear. Sonically, I enjoy the mid-range on them. I enjoy the the bottom end. The bottom end, a lot of the headphones these days have a super hyped bottom end, and I'm just not down for that, especially when I'm trying to make some decisions about how things sound. Um, Obviously, you can get used to just about anything, I think, over time, but right out of the gate, when I tested these headphones, uh, I found them to be the ones for me. And uh, generally, at like a street price of around $90, 
I think they're pretty working class in that that respect. So that's my pitch for some of my favorite headphones from Audio Technica. And, uh, and if you're interested in checking those out, there is a link on the Working Class Audio Recommends page. Be sure and click on that. And that's that. Let's get back to our interview here with Maurer Applebaum here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So when you're working with a band, from a, when you're working with music from other countries, uh, is there different... Uh, sonics that you try to adhere to are there different volume levels uh, in terms of you know just pure loudness from country to country or or is it all just very similar just make it sound good and 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 strong i think it's based on what's there like every recording has its own clues to where it needs to go to and you got to be open enough to to accept that and then there's what the client wants you need to find out how you can put what the recording needs and what the client needs. Sometimes they need the same thing. Sometimes they need different things. And you've got to find a way how to make them blend together. Um, when you do like, you know, British rock sounds different than Swedish rock. And also American rock sounds different than uh, French rock. You know, they're all different. The same with metal and pop and hip hop. and They're all different. And, and every quality of recording is different. So if a client from, let's say, Sweden wants to penetrate more of the American scene, he will look for more of an American sound. You can apply some of that to his recordings. Same as the opposite. If somebody wants to be more successful in Europe and he wants to have a sound that fits the European crowd, you can go that direction and find what fits to the recording and what fits his needs and still cater it in a way that it will be maybe both of them and fit the crowd there. So it's all these nuances that have a feel to them. And you can do that to a certain extent. Uh, regarding volume levels, I think that's really dependent on who is the person involved. Uh, some territories are very much open to just give us what you think is great. And some, you know, they want something certain specific and they're very you know very picky about it because it works for them that way so you try to cater them that way i don't have a certain volume level that i work on most of my masterings are more dynamic some of them are pushed but they're not slamming loud there are some that are slammed loud but you know if you look at all the projects i've done most of them are not slammed some of them are loud, but I try to make it feel like it's not pushing too hard on you, unless that's the request from the artist or record label or producer. And then, you know, I'll cater what they want and try to do the best I can with it. Uh, but there's no set rules. I've done things that are really, really slamming loud, and I've done stuff that totally far from that. And everything in between. <laughs> I, I was looking over your discography. You seem to have a lot of stuff that you've done for Rob Halford. Yeah. I've, uh, I don't remember how many, uh, I think I did, I did two studio albums and then I did a lot of live albums, live DVDs, live CDs. The DVDs were different than the CDs. It was different mixes and different masters. Um, you know, the five, one and the stereo, they were different, but even on the DVDs, when they had stereo, it was a different stereo extent the one in the CD. So there's quite a few Halfords there that I've done, you know, probably more than five. So how, 
I'm curious how you've made that connection with someone like Rob Halford. If you could maybe trace back how that connection started. Yeah. Um, just prior to coming to LA, when I was working for Sylvia, I was getting in touch with a lot of bands and producers from all over the world and got to do some international projects and some domestic ones just by me approaching them. And one of the per uh, people I approached was producer Roy Z. And uh, we talked, so we got in touch, you know, and then when I moved to LA, I contacted him again, saying I'm in LA now, because we already had talked before, so we knew each other a bit, just, you know, by emails and phone. And he was working on remixing uh, Fight, and he already had the first Fight album remixed and remastered, and then he was working on the second one called uh, Small Deadly Space. That was the name of it. It was the second Fight album. And I had mentioned that I'm interested in trying out, and I did. And uh, I did a few songs, and uh, he liked it very much, and Rob Halford heard it and liked it. So I got to do the whole uh, album remaster. It was basically remixed as well. Roy Z remixed it, and I mastered his remix. So remix and remastered, whatever you want to call it, but it was just like a new version of it that sounded very current at that time. And after doing that, I started doing a lot of projects with Roy Z. We did Ingve Malmsteen, an album called Perpetual uh, Flame. We did other bands like Driver, and kept working together. We did Sepultura together. And in time, more and more projects that Roy Z and I were involved together, he was working with Rob Halford then. And uh, there was uh, a few live shows that he asked me to master. And some of them were fine ones, some of them were stereo. And then they came in studio albums, the Halford 3 Winter Songs, which is the Christmas album. And later on, Halford 4 Made of Metal. And then a few more live shows, DVDs as well, Rock in Rio, uh, live in Anaheim, live in Super Setima Arena. Some people... I don't think are as proactive in seeking work. And uh, one of the ways that I actually became uh, aware of who you were was you actually reached out to me at some point, just kind of introducing yourself and saying, Hey, you know, if you need any mastering, you know, check, check me out. And I, you know, at the time I remember telling you, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm currently using a, a good friend of mine named John Greenham, who's been on the show as well, but I'm inspired by how you reach out to people. And and it seems like that's how this Roy Z connection was made. Is that correct? It started before I, I was in LA. Well, it started already when I was uh, just before leaving Israel and also when I was working for Sylvia Massey. I, I approached a lot of people. You know, I figured, you know, I want to get my name out there. I'll approach people. Some, some took it really well. And it, it was uh, very cool. And they contacted me back and, uh, you know, replied really nice and, gave me opportunities and some people didn't do anything with that. You know, some ignored it or some just said, okay, yeah, cool. Definitely keep in touch and nothing happened. Some were very honest and replied saying, we have somebody we work with, you know, just like you. So we have a, a relationship already. And uh, some probably took it the wrong way and uh, didn't like me for doing so. Hmm. I, I got a lot of, you know, you, you get a lot of a lot, you know what I mean? It's like you get you get from all of it from all of 
everywhere and some of it is good some of it is bad and some of it is ugly you know obviously any kind of rejection i think people generally it's it can be very discouraging how do, how do you see past that and keep your eye on the ball moving forward developing your career like obviously i know you're a family man so i'm sure that that's that's a lot of your inspiration too and you seem to be very passionate about mastering and audio but sometimes when you know when you kind of get knocked down a little bit what what do you do to get yourself back up and, and get back on the horses as, as we like to say well first of all I, had, I got a lot of rejection also it's the mentality differences you know sometimes you talk with somebody about your profession and of course you know you're pitching yourself you know mm-hmm. but sometimes people don't understand that you know a brother's got to eat and instead of being appreciative of you trying hard they just back off they're like whoa man you're too too much they don't get it they don't get it that if they were the other if we would switch places they would probably act the same in order to get to that point if they wouldn't act the same they would be probably working slower and not achieving what they want you know you really got to be a go-getter to to get what you want you know if you if you don't put it full speed ahead you know you might piss off people less mm-hmm. but you might not get the gig you know a lot of times people say yeah it's true you got to make connections you got to be nice you got to work your way in yeah that's true but at the same time that could take 20 years <laughs> you know why don't you just be upfront say what you do show that you're worth it or at least if you don't have credits yet at least show your passion and be willing to to work your way up and 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 get and get the gig you know and today it's a bit different for me i have less time to do all that that i could do years ago i have a 4 year old son and a 2 months old uh, baby daughter but back then you know that's what i had to do um, i made some great relationships with that because people they liked me being upfront and telling what i wanted to say you know telling my story and you know some people probably took it the wrong way because they didn't get it they didn't get that i'm passionate about what i'm doing you know they probably preferred me being more reserved about it but to get from a to z it takes a lot of work and if your goal is to work be good at what you're doing and make a living out of it you really got to take the time be persistent be patient because you takes time but you really got to go for it and I don't see much people going for it and I think that's why some of them can't make a living out of it or some made a living out of it because they had people supply them the work but they didn't go out there to get the work you know I've often thought that and I I've lived in San Francisco uh I live outside of San Francisco now but when I moved uh, to San Francisco from uh, southern New Mexico in uh, 1988 what struck me and really what to this day sticks with me is seeing uh, like, I would always see these like um, uh, mom and pop grocery stores, little convenience stores, or, you know, little restaurants most often run by immigrants to the United States. And I, it was a constant theme that I really saw these folks come to this country and really bust their ass and really hustle. And, it's like, and I don't mean to, I'm not trying to, you know, demean the United States in any way and in, in our, in the, our population here, but I have to say that this theme continues. Uh, immigrants who come to this country really 
see an opportunity and jump in feet first, you know, in the deep end and just really hit the ground running. I, I have such admiration for that. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of people calling me about like people from Israel who, you know, want to move to America or to anywhere in Europe or, you know, they want to be in this business and they ask me, you know, how did I do it or what, what do I recommend? And I always tell them that we didn't fly 15 hours just to do nothing. Okay. I don't want, I didn't want to come here for the perks of living in America, fancy car, you know, all that. No, that I wanted to do what I wanted to do, which is mastering. I wanted to be as good as I can. And I wanted to invest in it, be successful as much as I can. To do that, I have to invest in every way I can. Invest money and gear, invest time to improve my skills, invest in communicating with clients, creating new clients uh, or potential new clients. You've got to kind of work it all. And I'm, I'm, I just can't be in a comfort zone saying, okay, things come in. Because you never know if they come in or not. You've got to create the situation for them to come. And it's the industry has changed a lot throughout the years. But when I came to America, I came to it when it was in the worst situation. So I think that when you come in a, in a situation that is so bad, you really got to work harder. But then when you work harder, you learn how to do it better. I, you know, even though I work with a band and they were happy, it doesn't mean they'll come back. It does mean they know who I am. They do. It does mean they know the quality of the work I do. But who says they're going to come back? If they change record label, if they change management, if they change producer mixer and he has a guy he likes working with or whatever, or they decided they're, they want to cut the budget, do it you know, by themselves. Who said they're going to come back? And the more you're in this industry, the more you realize that a happy client is not a returning client. A happy client is a happy client. That's it. Nobody can say he's going to return. You can only say he was happy. Obviously, that is a major importance. Keep them happy because when they're happy, when they're asked about you, they'll say, oh, I had a good experience. It was very good. Yeah. End of subject. But if, if you have a negative experience, I'm sure you've discovered in America, obviously, people are very quick to tell you horror stories. You know, oh, I had, yeah, I hired this plumber and he was terrible. Or we went to this restaurant and the service was awful. But, but at the same time, you have to remember that people can take a good thing in a bad way too. Mm. One time I told a friend of mine, I said, I get the gig because I care. I lose the gig because I care. Like, it's okay if something happens on the way and there's a mistake. It's not about the problem. It's about the solution. Let's say you fixed everything. Sometimes they don't remember you fixed it. Let's say you say you go to a restaurant and it was horrible service. At the end of it, the manager comes to you and say, hey, I'm really sorry about it. Here's a voucher for four meals. For me, that's like this guy cares about me. So maybe the experience was bad, but he's willing to go the extra miles to make me feel better with it and let me experience it again. Mm -hmm. That changes the whole thing. But some people will stick to the situation where it was bad, not looking at the compensation. You know, you have to remember there's a whole picture surrounding it. Sometimes you work with somebody and because there's stress involved, you only remember the stress involved. You don't remember that he worked his ass off to make it sound great. You only remember it took a lot of time to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes things take time, but at the end of the day, it sounds awesome. 
when I when I hear horror stories, sometimes those horror stories are not really horror stories. It's just how the person likes to perceive it. Mm. Uh, he likes to say, oh, it was bad. But wait a minute. The result was not that bad. Maybe it took a while to get there, but he got the result. You know, some people are appreciative of the journey and some people maybe not. Well, in the end of the day, if the result works, it works. So, you know, if it takes a long time or not, you know, that's how it is. You know, I mean, come on. How many times the vocal take? How many times you do a, a guitar take? I mean, really, do we need to count the hundred takes that you did for one word? Punch in, punch out. <laughs> okay, so you're maybe not the best singer in the world. But in the end of the day, we got it nailed, right? That's it. Okay, so it took time, but it's there now. You know what I mean? So you, if, 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 you, if, if you had to deal with that, how come you're anal about something else? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, that, that's, a good, that's an interesting perspective that I had not really thought of, that the artist sometimes will put everybody else through lots of pain to get to the final product, but then they sometimes can expect people to perform on demand yeah yeah i'm like i'm a i'm a very demanding person why because i expect people to be demanding of me so i when i'm saying i'm demanding it means that i will put the effort to do things and i expect people to do the same if they don't they don't but i expect them you know I'm not jaded or ah, I don't expect them to do well. Yeah. If I don't expect all the time, you're, we're always going to get this subpar experience of it or, or product. But when you put expectations then at least you can say, look, this could be better. Let's work on it. Mm -hmm. If at the end of the day they say, no, that's what it is. And we'll, you have to work with it. Then I'll do so. But if there's a possibility to improve, why not? Absolutely. So, what are some of the, the ways that you really try to keep those clients coming back? Well, I try to be as accommodative as I can in terms of any revisions needed, any fixes. You know, they'll talk to me. I'll see what's possible. I'll work with it. If it's something that I can do, I'll do. If it's out of the realm of what can be done, I'll suggest a different option to do, maybe a new mix. You know, if it's something that uh, we can fix, we'll do it. If not, you know, there's a limit to what can be done. Maybe there's other ways to be creative about it, but I try to be as accommodative as possible and as communicative as possible. If they need me, they can call me, they can text, they can email. I, I would be happy to, to talk with them on the phone just to clear things up if needed. Do you find that communicating over email is a challenging way to go as far as communication? It's always challenging. Sometimes it's a bit, sometimes it's... The challenge in email really is that you don't have an immediate response. Even though people say, oh, the fastest way to get me is email. Yeah, well, that's the fastest way to email you is to email. <laughs> that's what it is. It's not the fastest way to get you. Right. So, you know, I learned a few things about how to email people and how to be very direct, but at the same time, very courteous or very open to things. And in time, you learn better and better how to do it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's misconceptions in email, especially when you're talking with people from different cultures and different countries, because for them, being direct is just being nice. And for others reading that directivity could be uh, very strange. you got to learn how to understand it and put feelings aside a bit sometimes. Understand that maybe we're not understanding it right. You know, reading comprehension is not exactly the same you know, with, with every person. Right. Know? Not like a book that was written in one way for people to understand it the same. 
kind of gives you a sense of what um, politicians or heads of state have to deal with when traveling around the world and they're meeting people from different cultures, different countries, different customs and ways of greeting one another and uh, and doing international business uh, also. Yes, yes, exactly. It's basically, this is international business. That's what we're doing. You know, me working with a man from Norway, I communicate with them in the same level as if, if I was with them here now as an American band. But the only difference is I try to explain things in a, in a way that won't be, you know, taking the wrong side. And at the same time, what they have, they tell me something. I, I try not to attach the feelings because it might, and, but you can't, it's, it's always going to be attached to feelings. I know. <laughs> try not to take it as, as a burden on me and feel it against them. So like if they say, it's not working that way, we need it this way. I just think of it, okay, oh, doesn't feel right, but hey, you know what? Maybe that's how they communicate. Let me fix this and ask them if this is better for them. What's your advice to those who are affected very emotionally by emails, tones of voice? Um, and, ter- and, and when I say your advice, meaning to other other engineers, other recording people, no matter what type of audio they deal with. Well, let's say they get offended by emails. And I would say try to communicate by voice because an email is, is written and words when they're written, they're very powerful, even if they don't have any weight behind them. So if you're kind of not sure what you're reading in terms of how heavy they're talking about, like what's the weight of it, say, uh, can we talk on the phone? And then you can hear the person, you know, and he might be actually, you know, speaking very nice, but that's his way of writing things. Mm-hmm. And that can change the whole thing. Sometimes on the phone, because it's quick and there's more dynamics in the conversation, you can fix an issue faster because you can ask the problem, they'll tell you, then you can say, well, I might be able to fix it this way, this way. What do you think? Okay, let's do it. Boom. We finished in 10 seconds, 20 seconds, an issue that could be written on 10 emails, just writing them and receiving them on different times, just delaying everything. So I think if one way you're discouraged, go the other way. And by the way, if you don't like talking on the phone because, you know, maybe they don't feel right on the phone, you can continue by email and say, you know, please write me, you know, what you need. I'll sometimes say, even though we're on the phone, I'll say, please email me all that info as well, just so I can do a checklist. Uh, like, oh, that song needs to be faded at this time, this time, at that time. So at least I have it, our conversation in email in terms of, bullet points of where I need to go and make changes. That's interesting. And and I, you and I had talked that you use Skype quite a bit actually to communicate with people. Yeah. I've been using Skype for probably, probably more than a decade. Interesting. And do you find that when communicating with clients, not only that audio communication, that direct audio communication, but that visual to see somebody's face and their reaction, is that, is that crucial or is that you find that helpful? Well, first of all, just the voice is a beginning. Yeah. And, you know, we had phones for so many years that we would do this. We still do this by phone. So, you know, of course, having the visual is cool, but I don't mind not having somebody has a camera closed or the communication is really bad because of internet bandwidth. Then we close the camera. That way, nothing is interrupting based on the, you know, the bandwidth is not clogged. 
So I don't have a problem just doing the phone. But either way, phone or video, sometimes even the, the audio doesn't work. So we just chat, but we see each other in the camera. Uh, <clears throat> what about language barrier? There's always one. It's always there. Yes. You can't ignore it. That's why you have to write in very simple words. Be very direct. Like, for example, somebody says, oh, that song sounds loud. Okay. Is it loud in terms of louder than the one before and the one after? Or it's loud compared to... <laughs> oh, you got to really dissect, dissect the meaning and put it to simple words. Have you ever uh, been tempted to try anything like Google Translate to speak in simple sentences in somebody's native language? You know, I, as everybody, I think it's always a cool experimentation, but I didn't do that. I actually just read reviews like that, but it's bad because a lot of them are slang words. Yeah. And when you try to translate, they, they don't place themselves right. You know, I wouldn't recommend doing so. You know, if the guy doesn't <laughs> understand the language... These translations, I, I get emails that are done like that. And it was like, you know, and you get weird things. I, I Today, I know more to understand what those words are. Because mm -hmm. I find that like a common denominator, like certain countries will use certain words like that. So I kind of understand, you know, it sounds like they're shouting. It's like, we want you to do this, you know, that. And this, it's very, we want you or want you to, you know, because the, the translator chops the right word, the, chops the words in between and you're kind of left with a message, you know, very strict message, but you kind of learn how to read between the lines. You talked about building up your equipment over time and reinvesting. I talk about this a lot on the show. I, I We discuss people going into debt. We discuss people's uh, or or people not going into debt and people having a, an economic philosophy uh, with regards to their their relationship with their equipment. Do you have an economic philosophy that you could verbalize? Yes. Yeah. Well, first of all, as you grow, you grow with the business. If you put in the beginning everything big time, you might get into debt. You might get in bad situation because it takes time for a business to come up to grow. Takes around, I think it takes around five years to kind of build a business, and then the next five years is establishing yourself already as a name. You know, the first five years, I would say you got to really start small, and that's not everybody, okay? I mean, but when I say start small, is you know you got to work your way in to make connections, and you got to work with what you get and invest the money in that. You don't have to go full throttle. As years go by, you can put more into it. If you put in the beginning too much, you're not going to have any money to, to live off. I, I think you have to have a survival mode and work mode. And the survival mode always has to be there. You always have to have enough money to live. When I say to live, I don't mean fancy, but like enough money to pay your rent, enough money to pay your electric, gas and water, and you know, your bills and enough to eat. Okay. You know, you don't have to go to fancy restaurants. And then the money that comes in has to cater the survival mode and then to cater your business because you've got to feed this, the business as well in order to grow. To feed the business would be to buy the gear, to invest in promotions, and uh, whatever is needed. So you don't have to put everything at once. You can patch everything slowly, especially nowadays, you know, because, you know, we're in a different 
situation than 20 years ago. So you can add slowly a few more pieces of gear, see what you like, work with that, what you don't like, maybe sell it or maybe keep it for later on. But don't, don't get into debts. Don't get to a situation where your survival mode is at risk. Once it's at risk, it will affect your work. When somebody doesn't have money to live off, he's more uh, agitated. He, 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 he's not in a comfortable zone in terms of he can't think as much. There's a difference between wanting more than not having it all. And it's okay to want more. It's okay to want to create bigger revenues. But if you don't make any money, it affects your judgment. It makes you very edgy. And you start arguing to make more, but you're losing the gig because of that. Or you're arguing because you can't find a way to pay your bills. So you just become, it becomes different than if you have your money to pay for your survival. First of all, survival. And like I said, to the minimum. You don't need much, for real. And if you can pay your minimum bills, at least you're not in debt. At least you don't owe anybody something. So what comes in now would be just either profits or money that will be invested back in the studio, which is what I did. So I always made sure I have a minimum to live from, and what came in was invested back in the studio then later on in the family as well, which now is be, is survival, by the way. So now family is part of survival. And can you talk on the uh, subject of work-life balance with your family, being a, being a father of two? I'm sure there are people who do it better than me. I had, a, I had a goal, and I still have the goal, and it's to become better in what I'm doing and more successful. And that means there's risks to be taken, both financially and the, the way you live. If I try to be as much as I can with the family. I can't say I'm doing that 100%. Mm-hmm. I also look at the big picture that I do supply, you know, I do supply to the family. We have, there's bills to pay, which I'm part of, and my kids can grow up and have the right education that fits them and have the food and everything. So I do my part of it. I try to be with them as much as I can. Hopefully, I'll be more with them in time. And, but when I was building the business, it, there were a lot of uh, sacrifices taken. And the sacrifices was less time with the family. We, I, when I say we, I mean people who are in audio. They have to understand that we chose a profession that not only has art in it, has technical, has psychological, as mental has um, so many things involved that it's far from a normal job. And those who do it for so many years, they know that. Those who are entering this business, they have to understand it's not just about the fun of doing it because there's a lot of ups and downs. And most of the time, you only see the success. You don't see all the things that are done to create that. And there's a lot of sacrifices, a lot of dealing with uh, negativity and, and positive stuff as well. And there's investments and learning curves. So if you plan on having a family and doing this, or if you already have a family and you started doing this, or 
you know, you, you, you've got to find a creative way to make it happen. Some people move to a place where it's cheaper to live and they don't have to do as much to survive and they have more time with the family. Others probably maybe use the weekend as family time more or maybe during the week do a few things with the kids. You know, I'm, I'm still learning on that end. A lot of mastering engineers these days, I know, deal with clients that uh, are not, you know, they, they send them the files. It it's, seems that more and more mastering sessions are run without the client sitting in the room these days. Is that your experience? Yeah. I think it also, wants to, it also goes like that with mixing nowadays. Um, you know, the ability to send files and to listen to them as a final result, yeah, that, that, that's probably one of the biggest uh, advantages in today's music industry. And 98% of my clientele doesn't even arrive here. And you know, the two other percent is maybe if they need to sit with me on edits or they want to check something. It's rare that I'll sit with them. I, I include revisions in my rates. So if they need any changes, they just need to tell me and I'll do so. And I go the extra miles so they don't have to worry about not being here. They can listen to, to the uh, masters in the place where they're most comfortable listening to. Uh, do you have a standard rate? Yeah. Uh, may I ask what that is? Yeah, it's 150 for a song. Okay. Includes revisions if needed on my behalf. That kind of covers many, many scenarios. Uh, as far as you know, when we commit to uh, a single rate, whether it be for mixing or mastering, or even an all-in rate for a production, um, so many times we can put in more work than than we're paid for. As far as a rate, that really kind of covers all the bases. Well, the reason I do that is. I might take a long time to work on a project. If I would charge hourly, it would be too expensive. And that way, I prefer giving a fixed rate of 150 And then any changes needed, you know, even though I go back and fix them, as long as they're on that, that specific mix that I got, yeah, I'll work on it to make it what the client wants. So he doesn't pay for how fast or how slow I am. He pays for what I'm giving him. You know, and even if it takes me a lot of hours, he's not going to be charged for those hours. And um, there are albums that there's smaller amount of songs, but each song is 10 or 20 minutes. Then I charge it differently. Then I charge it by run a prox running time divided by around five, five and a half minutes. And then I calculate how much that song would be, you know, because 20 minute songs, you know, it's different than a five-minute song. <laughs> they had different passages and different story to tell. Mastering for five-one, I don't even, I don't think I've encountered that because I've never worked on a five-one project. Uh, is that technically a a challenging scenario? I think five-one is easier than stereo in terms of you're less fighting. You know, material is not stuck in two speakers and in the center of it and the width of it. It's really spread out. So you'll probably get better separation. The only thing with 5.1 is there's no standards in 5.1 at all. So every mix you get can be thrown to different places. In the, you know, like, it's like, oh, right, this mix is more backwards. This mix is more sides. 
And, you know, the balance was really created in the mix. You need to make sure the balances go right, right way. So uh, there are challenges at 5.1, but because of the nature of it being spread to five speakers, normal speakers and a sub, that you have the, the, it's a bit more clear to work with, or, or let's say it's spread enough that you can work with it with less issues on how the density is. But at the same time, it has its own issues, like discrepancies between left and right. Sometimes the center is not done well, uh, or the subs are too much. There's also quad mixes, which come, which happen a, a lot these days. Basically, they're they're uh, front left and right, back left and right, but they're sitting on a five-one file. So the sub is muted, and the center is muted, and that's very common for live shows. It's 4.0. Interesting. But they, they all have their challenges. Uh, I've had, I have, I had worked on 5.1 mixes that, you know, they had some kind of imbalance and we had to take certain stands and put them in the bag and maybe add another reverb or change or, or bleed some of them to the front as well. Like I said, because there's no standards, the mixing engineer really positions things his way. And every system of 5.1 is placed differently. Some have the surround speakers really close to the head, and some have far from the head. So even if you measure the equal distance in 5.1 surround setup, it's not going to translate equal distance at the listener setup. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, my early experiences with mastering were you brought the mix into the mastering engineer, you sat, you, you mastering engineer would do their job, and... Uh, you sequence it, and then that's it. You're done. It's like a like a long day's trip to the doctor, and then you're done. But as I get further along uh, in my career, I find that mastering engineers, when I send stuff to get mastered, I know, for example, like John Green, I'm like, John will, John will do a, a run of it, and then I'll, I'll call him. I'll say, how's it going? And he's like, it's good. I ran it last night, but I'm going to listen again in the morning and, and just make sure that it's spot on. And I really like that approach and because I, I feel like he, he has that, uh, he gets a, a, you know, a fresh perspective. And whereas in my past experiences, it was always like, okay, this is it. We're doing it right now. And there's no, there's no, uh, I mean, I guess you could do a revision, but it just seemed like uh, not the norm in my early, early career. Well, some of it has to do with attended and unattended sessions. If you attend a session, you're working on it that time. So it makes sense that they'll sit with you and if you're happy, great. If not, they have to redo it. But when it's an unattended session, they can work on it on their time. And then if they feel they need to listen to it fresh, they'll do so. Or they'll divide it to two stages. One is mastering it and then sequencing it. That's how I do. I, I master and then I sequence. And then when I sequence, I make more adjustments. So that way... I can I have more flexibility to make changes if needed, including revisions. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it has changed because the ability to send files now, where 20 years ago was not that easy, and more people stay in their environment and not go out. So that way, it's it's an unattended session, and you know I you can work on something, you can take a break. It, it, the client is not paying for the break. You can take a break. You can go listen to it tomorrow to make sure it's fine. 
you know, the client is not paying for the night of not doing anything. So it's, it's technology helped change things. And also you deciding not to do an attended session opened that possibility. If it was an attended session, it would probably be different. Do you um, ever get any clients get specific with you and, and who have not worked with you before and they, when they're trying to vet you, when they're trying to, you know, check you out, do they ever gr- uh, grill you with questions like, well, what, what kind of gear are you using? Do you find that there's any prejudice with, are you doing in the box? Or are you doing, you know, running it through analog gear? And do you ever deal with any, anything like that? And do you think it, it, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that you, th- that you would think that it's more the person than the gear and then, but that's an assumption. Well, think of it this way. Sometimes people want to see if you're serious, okay? And that doesn't mean anything. Let's face it. You could be serious with no gear. You could be serious with gear. You could be not serious with gear too, right? <laughs> they, they want a filter. They want to have a filter to use. It's like they need something to put a check on you, okay? Or a mark that they're not happy with. You know, it's like, oh, I don't like him. He does this way. Even though you could be the best thing. Okay, so when they're communicating with you, when they're grilling you with questions, those questions can mean a lot and they can mean nothing at all. For them, it's the world. For you, you don't know because you don't know what it means for them. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're making decisions. If they're based on anything real, you never know. This is a music industry. Most decisions are not made by any, on, on anything like legit. They're just made, you know, it's like that's it. You know, somebody decides that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of talented people out there that don't have much gear. I think get great results. And there's people who have great gear and get great results. And there's people who have great gear, but sometimes don't want to do, you know, don't have the passion to do, you know. So um, when they ask the questions, I give them the answers. You know, they can also check my website, see the gear list, see the pictures. I understand the reason they're asking, you know. People put money in someone's pocket. They want to make sure that that pocket is not just pocket with holes. It's pocket that holds the money, you know, and, and it's worth it. Um, I'm, I never judge a professional that I know he's great based on his gear. Because if he gets the results from less gear, but he gets the results I like, that's fine with me. Of course, it's always fun to see that the person has the gear. It's always interesting to research what he has, you know, if you like his tone. In the end of the day, it's his mind that makes those decisions. It's not even the ear. Ear just captures what makes the decision is his mind. His brain is the is what's the function of making the sound. And you know, uh, you know, when you see gear, it does affect you because you see that people invested in their craft. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you see the investment just by looking at somebody's face and figuring out how much his brain knows. But you do see if he has a really cool studio, you understand that he invested that money. But, you know, he could it could go the other way. He could have just had money invested in the gear. There seems to be an awful lot of that going around. I think there's all everything of everything. There's a lot of people who don't have any talent and they're doing something. And then it works for them in a way because maybe they're so cheap that it works and maybe maybe in time they'll become better and there's also also really talented people out there but some of them don't get as much work as they could have because they don't have enough following or they're the, the way that they 
perceive their business is not in a way that they can, uh, uh, they perceive it as something that, of course, somebody will jump on, but that's not how it's perceived outside. So you always got to look at what you're doing and what's how it's reflected outside. So there's a lot of talented people out there that, you know, that get, get great results. Sometimes I hear, uh, you know, my fellow peers working, I'm like, wow, this is really good. It's really good stuff. And uh, even though there's a competition, you really got to be sober enough to understand that a lot of it is taste. And if somebody, let's say I did a project and someone else did, and I might assume that mine sounds great, and I hear theirs, and it, it maybe sounds less good than what I did, but it worked the way that the client wanted, then that's what the client wanted. So we go for it. We understand that that's what it is, you know. But sometimes it could be also the opposite, that the, that what the other guy did was actually better than yours. And, I'm, and then that moment when I hear something that was done better, I actually respect it. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn from it. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Oh, that's cool. Has more punch. Oh, okay, I get it, you know. you you got to be very uh, honest with yourself. And also have enough integrity to understand that it might be better what the other guy did. And the best way is to learn from it. And also it might not be better, but it might be better suitable for the client. That's a different case. Yeah. uh, Really kind of taking your ego out of situations where maybe maybe you you were not chosen in a – whether it be for mastering or mixing or producing – for any task and seeing, and instead of getting frustrated, trying to learn from that situation, I think that's, that's always a good thing. Yeah. Failure is not failure. If you learn something from it, if you didn't, if you didn't learn from it, that's a fail. You got to learn something, you know, it could be even a small thing like, Oh, I was late <laughs> or, <laughs> no, I, I turned it in too late. At least if it was earlier then I would have had a better chance or, even small things, you know, you, you got to pick up something from it. And even to pick up the, the, the idea of it didn't fit their needs, that's also something. Well, this has been fantastic, and we are out of time. Um, where, if somebody would like uh, to have you master their work, where can they find you? Just type my name, uh Maor Applebaum, that's M-A-O-R-A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M. I repeat, M-A-O-R-A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M. There's a lot of places like Facebook and and a website. My website is www.maorappelbaum.com. The business name is Maor Applebaum Mastering. Um, You can Google me. You can email me at M-A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M at gmail.com or call me 818-564-9276. I repeat uh, my email, M-A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M at gmail.com. My phone is 818-564-9276. I have a few Facebook accounts, so you can find me there too. Feel free to reach out. Don't yeah. don't be shy. Yeah, I'm communicative and I'm very, you know, everything with me is, is open to dialogue. You know, just tell me what it is. It's better to tell me what it is than to try to go around it. I'm, op- I'm, I'm very open to listening to the real situation, and, and they just need to talk with me. You know? Well, this has been a pleasure, man. 
I've really enjoyed speaking with you and I've, I've enjoyed uh, your views on a lot of things. And uh, I definitely admire your passion. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had fun talking with you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure doing this. I'm happy we got to do it. Uh, I'm sorry for my weird sound. The allergies just, it's really heavy on me now. So uh, The message comes through loud and clear. I appreciate it. You're welcome. There you have it. Mauer Applebaum here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great information, great advice. Hope you got something out of that. I always, always cherry pick the ideas from all of these these folks that come on the show, and I uh, enjoyed that immensely. So, Well, that's about it. We are out of time, and uh, appreciate you being here today. Of course, our music is provided by Mr. Cliff Truesdale. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, social media and additional audio support is provided by Cole Williams. Of course, that's Chuck Smith at the top of the show. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal Monitors. And once again, thank you for being here today. Appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.